This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the Legislature Today, I'm Randy Yowie. Today is day 20 for this 60-day legislative session. We are a third of the way through. In the coming weeks, deadlines on what bills can't be introduced and how will come quickly. In the House today, another bill that passed third reading deals with the doctor shortage we have in West Virginia and ways to expand medical services rendered to the public. Most delegates agree that at times getting in to see an eye doctor is as challenging as seeing your overbooked family doctor. House Bill 4783 relates to the practice of optometry and allows optometrists to perform many procedures they've already been taught and trained for through accredited schools of optometry. Some of these procedures are now restricted to ophthalmologists. Delegate Amy Summers, a Republican from Taylor County and a registered nurse, says this returning legislation simply removes unneeded legislative restrictions. These professions, nurse anesthetists, optometrists that we're talking about today, they're already trained to do these procedures. What's happened is the state government, the legislature, has prohibited them in law to do what they're trained to do. So we're trying to get government out of the way, remove those restrictions, and allow patients to have easier access to care. A bill previously passed by the House gives more authority and procedure responsibility to nurse practitioners. Delegate Rick Griffith, a Democrat from Wayne County and a pharmacist, calls for thought-out consideration with legislation that expands who performs medical procedures. Well, it's good with caution. Uh, this bill is within the scope of their educational experience, and so I'm fine with it. But we do need to have the caution to not put these people into positions for which they're not properly trained. Delegate Matthew Rohrbach, a Republican from Wayne County and a gastroenterologist, says the House is working to find a happy medium regarding the expansion of patient care and conducting proper medical procedures. If people have training to evaluate problems or, or do certain procedures, I think we're looking at ways to expand access to care because, as you know, there's a tremendous physician shortage out there. So if we don't look at some alternative pathways to allow people to get access to care, there's just going to continue to be deeper and deeper problems with access. And that's where the legislature is really trying to work to be able to find some middle ground, make sure people have the training. But if they do have the training to expand out the scope of practice a bit to alleviate some of these shortages in care. House Bill 4783, the optometry bill passed 91 to 2 and now goes to the Senate. Today the Senate passed five bills unanimously and sent them over to the House. One of those bills could open more recreational trails in West Virginia. Brianna Heaney has more. Senate Bill 196, the West Virginia Rails to Trails Bill, aims to encourage railway landowners to permit unused tracks to become trails for recreational use. 
Author of the bill, Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, says it would give liability protection to a railway landowner whose land is being used for the rail trail program. That's something that always concerns you know, any owner of land. Uh, if somebody gets hurt on his or her property, that they might get sued. And that's the fundamental purpose of the bill, to try to create uh, opportunities for expansion of rail trails and recreational opportunities for people. He says the legislation came at the request of the Berkeley County Commission to incentivize the development of rail trails. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. A piece of legislation introduced last Friday aims to define sex-based terms used in state law. Emily Rice has that story. In a Monday press conference, Governor Jim Justice promoted House Bill 5243 alongside representatives from the Independent Women's Law Center and Independent Women's Voice. Women are women, and women are really important. The bill is called the West Virginia Women's Bill of Rights, or the West Virginia Act to define sex-based terms used in state law, help protect single-sex spaces, and ensure the accuracy of public data collection. Riley Gaines is an ambassador for Independent Women's Voice. She described her experience swimming on a team with a transgender female as violating and betrayal. We as female athletes, female swimmers, we watched on the side of the pool as this mediocre male swam to a national title, beating up the most impressive and accomplished female swimmers this nation, this world really has ever seen, including Olympians, American record holders. May Mailman is the director of the Independent Women's Law Center. She said allowing for the interpretation of the word woman in the law is offensive. Judges, bureaucrats, sports bodies, and other elites seem not to know that women existed at all. They equated us to a state of mind. Identification replaced the biological reality that we have been living our entire lives. Isabella Cortez is the gender policy manager for Fairness West Virginia, a statewide civil rights advocacy organization dedicated to fair treatment and civil rights for LGBTQ plus West Virginians. It's offensive to introduce a bill called the Women's Bill of Rights when the bill does nothing to support women. It doesn't give women any new rights, and it doesn't do anything to protect the rights that women already have. Cortez said the bill aims to ban transgender people from using the bathroom that aligns with their identity in public spaces. If there is simply no evidence that allowing transgender people to use restrooms that align with their gender identity increases uh, you know, risks um, or danger or poses any safety risk. Cortez said she and Fairness West Virginia want transgender West Virginians to know that they will not stop fighting for them. We know things are scary right now, uh, but you are seen, you are loved, and we will do everything that we can to keep you safe and to keep you protected in this state. House Bill 5243 is being considered by the House Judiciary Committee. For the legislature today, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. West Virginia is not really known as an agriculture state, but you might be surprised at the variety and diversity of farming that goes on here. Bob Runner brings us a look from Farm Bureau Day at the Capitol. 
Agriculture Day at the West Virginia State Capitol is a lot more diverse than you might think. First of all, there are at least 500 members of the Future Farmers of America. Now, you know there won't be 500 future farmers out of this group, but they all seem to have some interest in lobbying for some legislation to make agriculture more favorably regarded by their legislators. And we just want to ensure that our farmers from home get the best voice. So every FFA member here knows different things that are going on in their area, so they'll get to speak with their representatives to ensure that what is going on in their area is properly represented. Many people don't know that there are 32 grade A milk producing farms in West Virginia. But we also don't know that milk is generally mixed with milk from other states. Fortunately, our dairy princess is here to explain it all to us. Dairies throughout West Virginia sell to some of the bigger co-ops, so like Dairy Farmers of America, Organic Valley Dairy Co-op, or your Maryland Virginia Co-op, which are some of the larger co-ops. So those sell to plants within that they'll pasteurize and those will come into our stores. So yes, you're probably drinking a bit of West Virginia milk every time you buy a gallon of milk. When you see these brightly plumed birds, you may think fighting cocks and fighting cocks is illegal. But in West Virginia, there's now an association to preserve the lives and preserve the heritage of these beautiful birds. When you come to one of our shows and see these kids pick up these birds, you'll change your mind about these game file. They just get a bad rap. When you think about agriculture in West Virginia, you're probably thinking about family farms or dairy farms or cattle farms, but are you thinking about the wood products industry? Are you thinking about the future farmers of America groups? And are you even thinking about fancy game birds? For the legislature today, I'm Bob Brunner reporting. An ongoing discussion in the legislature is how to staff and fund fire and EMS services around the state. Much of the state, especially in rural areas, is covered by volunteer firefighters. But those departments need money for equipment, ambulances, and the trucks that can't be raised with bake sales. I've been following this issue. Earlier today I sat down with Chris Hall, the executive director of the West Virginia EMS Coalition, and Delegate Clay Riley, a Republican from Harrison County and the vice chair of the House Fire and EMS Committee. I am here at our set in the Capitol Rotunda and Delegate Riley, Mr. Hall, thanks for joining us today to talk about fire and EMS and all things related. Let's just start out generally speaking, when it comes to our volunteer fire departments, Delegate Riley, you keep an eye on them, I know, throughout the legislature. What are the pluses and what are the challenges? Well, first we got to recognize those are the fabric of our, those members of the fabric of our community. They are there when we need them the most. And so I've had the opportunity the past two years to serve as vice chair of fire and EMS so I've really went on a listening tour listening to a, a number of our departments and one of the things they talked about is the negatives is is the challenges in trying to um, recruit new members but the positives are that the sense of pride that you get in the community and the support that they have from the community members so I think you know it's it's incumbent upon the county commissions to be able to to support them and it's incumbent upon the state to be able to help facilitate that and we'll talk about trying to get new members here Chris, I know that a number of VMS uh, members are also volunteer firefighters, so you have a stake in the game. Absolutely, and EMS and fire, you know, it, it's a blend where it's a service that's essential to our communities, so we have to ensure that the ambulances and the fire trucks are staffed when that call for 911 comes, and in order to accomplish that in many communities, we have to rely on those volunteers as well as paid staff. Well, and, and we know that 
Governor Justice has set up the Answer the Call program to try to recruit EMS. There's not a recruiting program for volunteer fire departments. As you said, it has a lot to do with the county. But what can the state do that they're not doing now to help bring more people in to the VFDs? Well, I think the Answer the Call program was a fantastic program. I was glad to be able to work with Governor Justice on that. As it relates to some of the fire and EMS, and some of the things we've heard is the uh, significant demands during the training process. So I think you might see us undertake some studies on what those training requirements are. We passed a bill last year that allowed for modular training over a period of five years. We've heard that that's helped in some areas and that's hurt in a few other areas. Additionally, we want to make sure that we get them engaged and on the scene and able to help with others, direct traffic or fire hose and become part of the uh, fire department. So the sooner they become engaged, I think the more likely it is to stay. I'd also I also think that there's some opportunities within some of the nursing programs to be able to, to cross train and be able to give them some, some opportunity to have some experience. When we talk about the answer to the call program, we've seen, some, we've seen the billboards around the state. This is, I think, the second year. And if I'm not mistaken, the first year with $10 million was dedicated toward it. Another $10 million has been proposed again this year. But uh, Chris, you and I were talking a little bit earlier that this is stabilizing, but it's not really bringing in the new people that you wanted to see. Um, we've seen an influx. It did stabilize and we got a few new people into the system, but it has to be an ongoing effort uh, because one of the things that we see in EMS is just a high turnover rate. When you talk about the difficult work that people do in EMS, you, see, you experience death, you see severe injury, uh, you see overdoses, you see families, friends, and it's really taxing on those individuals. And that's where we need to continue that, that outreach and that answers the call initiative, but also do more in the areas of mental health to help support those people so they stay in EMS once we attract them to the field. And I've got mental health circles. We'll definitely get to that and talk about that. But what about the funding mechanisms when we're talking about maintaining EMS work? Um, one, one of the things is attracting them and training them, but also trying to get more money into funding to support salaries. It's one of the most difficult careers out there. There's not another healthcare worker, and we do consider ourselves healthcare workers, that has to go to work in body armor or shovel out a driveway when there's 18 inches of snow in order to care for our patient. So we've got to do more so those people feel appreciated and want to stay in the field. Delegate Riley, when you look at, at funding, and I know that's always the elephant in the room. You listen to Governor Justice in his state of the state, for example, and he said, I'm going to do $350 million here for economic development, and I'm going to do $12 million here for fire and EMS. $350, 12 you know, there are some people that just don't see that balance. Explain that to me. Well, I think when you look collectively, holistically across the all the funding uh, scenarios and all the sources, whether it's county, whether it's a levy, whether it's um, wherever the billing the insurance, I think that's how you have to look at it collectively. I know there's some things, some bills that we have moving this year. One of the major issues you hear from from EMS agencies is their inability to be able to bill for refusal of treatment, and I know that's something that we are working on. A, piece of legislation right now that we hope will hit an agenda. So while it sounds like it's a significant difference, I think when you look at the numbers, it's important to know that there's county levies and there's a lot of other things that factor into what the to that. But I do think you saw significant support last year uh, for that funding to come through, and I think you'll see some significant support this year as well. Yeah, that billing is, is, is an interesting point. I don't think people realize that, that EMS can only bill when they uh, transport, that, that they show up, 
they offer treatment, they, they offer aid, they can't bill for that. Uh, and I think it's very vital, at least from what I understand, that, that they be able to do better than that, to get money into the coffers, is that right? Absolutely. Um, data from the office of EMS showed last year, from October to October, EMS was dispatched 1.1 million times across the state of West Virginia, but we only transported 420,000 patients. So that meant we could only potentially bill for 40% of the times that we responded. So it makes it very difficult to maintain the funding and for the ongoing 24-7 response, particularly in the small rural counties that don't have a lot of calls for 911, but still need to have that ambulance available 24-7, 365, even holidays. Look like there might be support for that? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm hoping we'll see a piece of legislation hit the agenda in the next few weeks, uh, and we hope that we'll be able to get it out of fire and EMS and move it on. Because we do think that's a real issue, and it's one that's really kind of come up as we've delved into this over the past couple years. Just puts more money into the program. Um, ambulances. Uh, from what I understand, it's about four hundred thousand uh, dollars, between three and five hundred thousand, to send out an ambulance that's that's fully equipped, that that's ready to go. Uh, and I, what do you see? The, the state is about two hundred and fifty ambulances short right now. Is that right, Chris? Well, it, it, it's twofold. There's, there's ambulances out there. The shortage with sending them out and our problems with response is having the people to put on them. But what we're proposing here is we do need about 250 ambulances statewide, according to the, just for emergency response, according to the office of OEMS. So what we're, what we're proposing is if the state could help provide that ambulance, that large capital exper uh, expenditure of three to $500,000 for the ambulance fully equipped, then these small rural squads that may respond to less than one call per day, won't be stuck with that capital expenditure and the revenue that they generate from response then could go back into supporting the operations. Right now they're having to spend that money on debt service and it's really restricting their ability to pay for salaries, fuel, insurance, all those things that you have to pay for to keep, keep the ambulance on the road. And Delegate Riley, what they've called for is some kind of a graduated grant program, if I'm not mistaken, that you can't just fund 250 ambulances right off the bat, but you could do 50 a year for a five-year period, graduate them in there. Does that kind of make more sense when it comes to finding that funding? Well, I know we just started discussing some of this program and, and some of what that might look like. I think as you look at it across the board, I do think there's you know a shortage of some of those ambulances. I know the state's gone into some contracts for uh, vendor bid type thing to help reduce some of those costs. So I know that it's been something we've been actively working on, and it'll be something that I'm sure we'll evaluate as we go forth in a session. Okay. Mental health for first responders, it's something that I've been looking into over the last two years now and spent a lot of time with uh, Jody Ratliff, the director for EMS. Um, Chris, I know that, that you have an idea on an app and that I understand that maybe it's working in Florida and a couple other states to make sure, because you said earlier, people always don't realize that first responders are the ones that are going to see the most trauma. And, they, and there's been a suck it up mentality for years, if not decades, that still is prevalent here and there, but though I'm told not as bad as it was because there's a more understanding in 2024, but, but how serious still is the mental health situation where somebody comes back from a run, they're traumatized, and they need some help right then and there? Absolutely. And to your point, we are kind of asking for funding support for access to an app because what we find is sometimes people are reluctant to talk about what they're, what they're feeling until it's too late. And these apps allow folks to get the help they need anonymously 
but also then if they need it, can schedule follow-up care in person. You know, th there's a real concern in the EMS community, not only about their peers finding out, you know, the problems fa people are facing, but also where do you go to provide that care and receive that care because EMS workers, police, fire, they're reluctant to go to a lot of the care providers because they don't want to bump into the folks in the waiting room that they were just providing services to earlier in the week. I know the state, Delegate Rally, is, is hooked, we're hooked up to the 988 program for, for EMS to get some kind of care. And I know that Director Ratliff has, has talked about a, a critical response team going out. You know where things stand with that? Well, I know that they've been working on that, and it, and it is a real issue. I mean, the first responders are the ones that see the most tragic. They're the first ones on the scene. And, it, and, it's, and Chris is right. It's, it's something that they don't want to be, see the person in the hallway or in the waiting room that they just saw. So I know that that's a real issue. I know we are also working on some legislation on who can prescribe PTSD. And so I know that's something that will be coming forward. And I know they're working on establishing that program because, you know, we do have to provide that help, and I think that's important. And we do have pockets of help right now. I know there's a Compass program in the Huntington area that works directly with some of the first responders, uh, police, fire, and EMS. Uh, there's another program, I think, up in the Romney area that I, I've talked to a couple of firefighters or EMS agents that have gotten together themselves. Uh, I guess those are still valuable to have. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that we've suggested that's low cost is to coordinate a database where these resources are available. So no matter where you are in the state, you can go to the website and, and find some of those resources so you know where to call for help. Now, I know you were talking earlier too about licensing and make, think, making it easier for somebody to join a volunteer fire department or EMS. And you talked a little bit earlier about licensing and training. What changes maybe needed there? Start, let me start with you, Mr. Hall. Well, the, the Senate passed a bill that we requested today um, that would streamline some of the recertification processes That's right. um, that, so that it would line both the state registration process with, this, with, the, with the national registration process, so making things easier. But another thing that we've asked for is to eliminate all the licensure and certification fees for EMS agencies and for EMS personnel. We think we can do that for about $360,000 and that relieves a burden off of many of the EMS providers and particularly the small rural ones in a very low cost manner. I know when you have programs, I, 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 you have, well, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, I mean, it's a, it's a great bill, and, and we have a complimentary bill in the House that I was happy to sponsor with Chairman Mallow and, and Delegate Statler and other, and Delegate Jennings, who are also, uh, and Delegate Summers, who are very invested in this, that, making that certification easier. And when you guys are talking about amendments, I hear the word cleanup. Let's just clean this up, clean that up. This sounds like it's along the lines of a cleanup because there's things that are already there, but there's ways to make it easier that won't cost a whole lot of money and make it better for people to join. Yeah, if you're having to remember, you know, every two years or every four years, which certification you have to, to renew and not this year, but next year. And I've got constituents. I had a call last week from a from an EMS a trainer who, who said, you know, it's kind of crazy. I have to do this every couple years and I never know which one um, so I was happy to be able to, to to join on that bill and look forward to being able to pass something along with the Senate. Uh, just a little bit of time left. Uh, Chris, tell me what else I didn't ask you. Give me a bottom line from when it comes to helping out EMS. 
EMS is in a state of emergency in West Virginia. Many people don't know that their local EMS agency is not government run and they're not guaranteed to receive an ambulance. And what we're working on here in Aston Legislature for is the support we need to keep those ambulances and the personnel that, that's responsible for them on the road. We're getting a great response from the legislature, from the governor. Uh, they're more willing to help hearing us than ever before. And we just look to build on that through the, through the next few weeks. And Delegate Rally, it looks like there are bills in process. You've just explained them all. You guys are going to work hard on them. Oh, absolutely. I think you've seen more momentum in fire and EMS over the past three years than I think I've ever seen prior to that. Oh, absolutely. And I think Chris would agree with that. I think we have tremendous momentum, and I expect this legislature to carry forward with that. It's an ongoing program. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for spending this time with us. Catch the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting covers the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wbpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia Channel. I'm Randy Yoey. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Join West Virginia Public Broadcasting for the nightly coverage of the 2024 legislative session. From in-depth reports to floor debates, committee action, and newsmaker interviews, the Legislature Today brings you diverse opinions and analysis. Legislators, stakeholders, and advocates all get a seat at the table discussing Mountain State policy and politics. Weeknights at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Join West Virginia Public Broadcasting for a special screening of the new docuseries Gospel on Thursday, February 1st at 6 p.m. at West Virginia State University's Davis Fine Arts Center. We will have a special performance by the Martin Luther King Jr. Mill Chorus. There will also be a panel discussion about the rich history of black spirituality through sermon and song. This event is free and open to the public. We hope that you'll join us.